Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these students. Thank you for the work they and many others offered to children this week, children who came to faith in Christ, children who learned more carefully, had a better picture of who Jesus was by the time the week was over. Now, Lord, help me as I open your word. I'm grateful for the privilege of doing so. Help me do it well and clearly so that you would be loved and trusted and obeyed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. How are you? I'm all dried out and excited to be standing in front of you with an open Bible. This is a time typically where pastors are taught and capture people's attention. Often I tell a little story or tell you about my latest mess up or losing my keys or getting crushed in a wrestling tournament when I was in seventh grade or something like that to help draw your attention eventually to the text of the Bible. This morning we're going to go straight to the Bible. I'd much rather today tell you a story about Jesus and two of his impertinent disciples. Open your Bibles, please. It won't be in your notes. You'll need to open your Bible. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, please. And I am reading along with you in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Everybody have it? If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the seats. Please open it in the second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 10, we're in verse 35. Everybody ready? Story starts with a bang, get ready. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him referring to Jesus. We're dropping in mid-story. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, you laughed. You did pay attention to the story. What do you think of their request so far? My goodness. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I love the patience of Jesus. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. What do you think about these guys so far? They say, Lord, we believe what the prophets have told us. We have believed your own teaching. We can see in the Hebrew Scriptures that you were the one who was promised to us. We believe that you will reign. Here's what we want. When you reign, put one of us at the right and one of us at the left. Give us the best positions. It's very kind of them. They're letting Jesus decide who sits on his left and who sits on his right. All they want is to be there. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, for those of you who've read this story, you've read the Bible, do you know what Jesus is referring to here, drinking a cup down, being baptized? What's he talking about? His crucifixion. He's using imagery that should have been familiar to them from the Hebrew Scriptures of drinking a cup of suffering and death down. There's pain and loss, even death in the cup, and Jesus is going to drain it. Baptism, as you just saw, is an immersion. When Suzanne was baptized, she momentarily disappeared. It's a picture of the burial, the death and the burial of Jesus. Jesus says to them in language that they should have understood, I'm on my way to the most profound, immersive suffering and death that anyone has ever experienced. Can you come with me into that suffering and death? Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. They're a little bit like toddlers now. I can do it. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
They got much more than they bargained. They were told, you will suffer with me. You will die for me. But the privileges you're seeking, I'm not granting those. Those belong to whomever they have been prepared. This would have been a good day for James and John to keep their mouth shut. They've only spoken with foolishness. They've only embarrassed themselves. You ever had a day like that? I have, sometimes on Sunday. I like what follows. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The other ten hear about it and they're ticked. And I've asked myself why. Perhaps they're angry for the same reason you laugh. Perhaps they're angry at the audacity to come to Jesus who has turned now decisively toward the cross and their entire goal is, Jesus, since you're dying, when you're glorified after your death, can we have the best spots beside you? It may have been that they're indignant because James and John thought of it first and the ten thought they were going to lose out. There must be something about it because of what happens next. Look in verse 42. Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, people who don't know God in the ancient world, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Has the world changed much? No, the people in charge never tire of reminding us that they're in charge. They wield power. We try to bear up under it. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Listen, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's capitalized, there's a reason for that. That's a messianic title drawn from the book of Daniel in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was written 700 years earlier. Jesus, in his beautiful economy of words, says, you're exactly right about who I am. I am the one that is prophesied. I am the one who is going to reign someday. But even I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You've completely misunderstood my purpose and my identity. I'm not here now to rule. I have come to serve and not only serve, I've actually come in serving other people. I have come to die for people who aren't even looking for me yet. Are you familiar with the phrase, come to Jesus talk? This is literally a come to Jesus talk. Two of the 12 disciples made such an audacious, inconsiderate, misguided, unchristian request of Jesus that they requested prominence. They wanted to stand out. They wanted to be outliers. They wanted to be gifted. They wanted to be empowered. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to enjoy prestige. They wanted to bask in his glory by being those closest to him and the actual, original, true, unique Son of God, Jesus literally had a come to Jesus talk and gathered the 12 and says, you're acting like people who don't know God at all. This rulership, this authority, this preeminence, that is a sign in the world of people who don't know God. Let me explain to you what it's like to be my disciple. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even I, Jesus says, even I, the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's why this message matters. I want you to enter into it with me. The first congregation, the first service, the congregation was very responsive. I pray by the grace of God you will be as well. Everything I'm about to tell you is extremely countercultural. It goes against the wiring of your own heart before you came to Jesus. 
There's nothing in our culture that esteems what Jesus said or did in what I just read to you. Our culture is actually built for prominence, for influence. We have as an example, it's just symptomatic and it's emblematic of our present day culture. We have a new phenomenon in the last few years of something called an influencer. This is someone who is almost unknown personally to the entire world, but is admired by millions because of the kind of life they visually present to other people. We now know through research, doctors, psychologists, therapists, university professors have, have noticed and documented through careful, actual scientific research a devastating effect on young Americans because of the influence of influencers. Because they compare the life in, that they see in their smartphone scrolling with the life they have with the heart, the mind, the soul, and the desires that they actually endure in their own secret interior life, and they make a terrible mistake in thinking that their lives are worthless and drab and sad and hopeless in comparison to the carefully curated lives they see on the tiny screen. And the heart of every human being continues to reflect what James and John brought to Jesus. A desire for preeminence. It's woven through so much of our marketing. The United, the United States Army years and years ago had this simple slogan, be all that you. I have it on good authority now from someone I'm very close to that the Army is not entirely concerned with him being all that he can be. <laughs> they don't mind him being who he is, but there are greater priorities than a recruit being all that he can be. This week I saw one of the greatest American universities, a Christian university, the home, literally, that educated some of the modern Christian martyrs. Here's their latest marketing push. You can have it all. It's very different from their slogan. It's very different from their stated purpose. It's on Instagram, just a few words saying to prospective students, come here and have it all. See, that's what James and John wanted. And that's the importance of this sermon. See, what happens in a sermon, I live through it every Sunday. I grew up in church. I didn't go to church. I was carried into church. I've been in church that long. Someday they'll carry me out. What happens in church is you have a brief encounter with God's word. If your heart is open and the spirit works in your heart and life, you see truths that are there. You have a momentary awareness of what is missing, of what is right. You praise God for what is right. You ask God for what is missing. And then the service is over and the pastor says goodbye. I'll see you next week. And then immediately the question becomes, where are we having lunch? And I do that. Our family's not very good at planning, so typically I'm either an hour late to lunch because I hang out here and talk to people, or I'm absorbing a storm of text messages toward the, when I finally get back to my phone saying where we're going, usually holy moly if you care to join us. <laughs> but by the time we have lunch in my, my own personal experience, what often happens is that what we saw and what we heard that was so captivating in that moment is set aside as a TV show might, as a great Broadway production might be, as a great moment in literature reading an insightful book that cuts through your core and shows you something about yourself that you did not know, you close the book and it's over and nothing happens beside the moments of awareness. The awareness, the truth that you encountered through the Word of God and the Spirit of God is not brought into actual practice. If that happens in this sermon or any other, it will all be for naught because the Bible says that we should be not only those who hear the word of God, but those who put it in practice. If we only listen and we do not obey it, the Bible warns we are only fooling ourselves. Not even fooling anybody else, certainly not fooling God. And this is kind of a, 
It's kind of a risky thing because what I have to tell you today, illustrated in the story of James and John and presented in the epistles and the continuation of our series on the Holy Spirit, is completely counter to the culture. Whether it's the university or the military or Instagram or your own parents, everything in this culture and most of all, the engine in your own heart is telling you make something of yourself. Make an impact. Stand out. Let them know. Don't tell them. Show them. And hopefully somebody will be there to take a picture. And they'll know. And Jesus said something entirely different. He said, you're acting like pagans. You're acting like people who don't know God at all. You act like people who never went to synagogue, who never opened the scriptures. When Daniel spoke of me as the son of man, it's a title of messianic glory to be sure, but it's a title of sacrificial humility. My way ends in the cross to give life to other people. My life has never been about being served by others. I have come in the flesh not to be served, but to serve, and to serve in such a way that it will actually cost me my life. I will die that others may be rescued. That's why Jesus had to come to Jesus talk. That's why Jesus called the 12 together. And for a few weeks, I've slowed down. We've been in this doctrinal series talking about God. God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for three weeks, I've shown you what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit, first of all, makes us belong to the family of God. He shows us the death of Jesus on the cross He shows us our sin, how far we are from God. He makes us aware of our need. He makes us run to Jesus. He gives us new life, and we belong to the family of God. And once we're in the family of God, he continues to live and work in us so that we will behave like God's kids. Because in a loving, healthy family, it's never enough to merely belong to the family. Loving families insist that you behave like you're in the family. No loving family has ever welcomed a child into their life by adoption in the way that God adopted us and said, good news, you belong, now go do whatever you want. No. We give children our name. We say things like, you're a Gusky now. Family in our church that adopted three. And you don't look like us but we belong together. You belong to this family. We are your mother and father. Here's how you will behave. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He reminds us of Jesus. He also guides us, we learned. And today, I want to show you a third thing that the Holy Spirit does for you once you're in the family of God. The Holy Spirit not only teaches you, he not only guides you, he gifts you and empowers you to serve. He does that for every Christian. He does that at the same moment he places you in the family of God by his own sovereign choice. He, as God, chooses what your gifts will be, what your purpose will be in the family of God, and he gifts you and he empowers you to serve. That's a very simple sentence. He gifts and empowers us to serve. That's my words, not the words of the Bible. I wrote that sentence to reflect the passage I'm going to read to you now. But let's just work through it. Do you, have you enjoyed, would you like to be thought of as gifted? Absolutely. Stop with the false modesty, folks. It would, it would be the greatest day of your life if someone said of you, she is so gifted. Oh, yes. No, really. It's... How about being empowered? How does that sound? Oh, power. To be empowered. You ever have the kind of boss that told you that you were responsible to do something but then wouldn't let you do it? You ever been given responsibility without authority? Ever been held to goals and standards without resources to meet them? That's the opposite of empowerment. That's disempowerment. That's disenfranchisement. How'd it feel? Terrible. 
The Holy Spirit loves you so much that once he makes you belong to the family of God, along with life and privilege, he gives you gifts and power within the family of God. But look at the last part of the sentence. Your gifting and your empowering is to what now? How's that feel? Oh, it feels great. Let me tell you something I've found in my own heart. Sometimes I like to think I'm pretty good at serving until somebody treats me like a servant. That's when I found out what I really think about serving. My real identity in Christ, my own acceptance of being a servant of Christ and a servant to others is exposed whether I'm contented and thankful and joyful in it or a little bit perturbed about it when somebody treats me like a servant. But if you're a real disciple of Jesus, if you follow the Son of Man, if you are one who belongs to the one who was prophesied to die on a Roman cross and rise from a borrowed grave to give life to others, the purpose of all of that gifting and empowering was to help you serve other people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. Look with me in verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in how many people? Everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's more here, but I'm just trying to teach you a doctrinal truth. I won't read all of it to you. Now that we've read it, let me remind you of the context. The Corinthian church was the biggest pain in Paul's neck, maybe of any of the churches he served. They were horrible. They were immature and divisive. They had each picked their favorite preacher. They had formed factions and fan clubs around those preachers. One man in the church was apparently sleeping with his stepmother, and rather than be horrified and call him to correction, the church was celebrating it, saying, isn't it good that we're forgiven this much? They were suing each other. Pagan judges had to decide apparently petty disputes between believers well known across this wicked city. The church of Corinth was behaving so terribly that Paul warns them in the next chapter that some of them had become ill and some of them had actually died by God's choice because of the wicked irreverent way they were behaving at the Lord's Supper. In the shared meal, when they should have been looking back with gratitude at the cross of Jesus, they were using that instead to mark differences in wealth between them. Some of them apparently were showing up drunk. They were feasting while other people went hungry. And Paul said to them, this is why some of you are sick and some of you have died. Stop it. That's the Corinthian church. That's in 1 Corinthians 12. You'll notice, if you read this passage with me again in that context, you'll notice the point in a new way. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice he's calling them to unity. He's saying, fractured, divided, immature, childish as you are, all of you who are Christians and actually belong to God, you're all under his care. He has gifted and empowered each one of you, not for your own glory, not for your own prominence, but, verse 7, for the common good. A few practical thoughts from what we just read. First of all, very contrary to our culture, your gifts are not for you. The whole point of the culture. This is really prominent in athletes. Is that if you are genetically gifted, you're taller, faster, stronger, quicker than the rest. You have been given extraordinary gifts. You should use them. And in this Instagram crazed culture, you should draw as much attention to yourself and get as much as you can out of your athletic prowess, which won't last long. Get it now. Make it about you. If you put the hashtag blessed after all your boasts, it'll seem humble. 
watch for that. You'll see what I mean. In the kingdom, your gifts are not for you. They did not come from you. You did not decide what you would be given, and they are not to be used for your own good. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the, what? Common good. Not for your greater glory, but for the common good. Secondly, the gifts of the Spirit used in the power of the Spirit are life-changing. This language is so rich. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. That service to others, it's not mere volunteerism. It is the power of God flowing from your ordinary life into the life of another ordinary human being, but because it is God who is at work, extraordinary things are happening. See, sometimes we make a mistake, and I've been feeling for months that I should clarify this. We talk of people here in the church as volunteers. And all we mean by that is you're not paid to do the amazing service that you do. But I volunteer outside the church in secular organizations. What you do in, in service to Christ, to bring the gospel, to help disciple, that is so much more than mere volunteering. The people who are picking up trash on the beach, good for them, I do it sometimes too. That's volunteering. This passage says something much bigger, something much more profound, something much more important. Verse 6, it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. In other words, when you do what God has gifted and called you to do, you're not just another volunteer as you might be down at the Rotary Club. No, you're doing this as a Christian. You're doing this for Christ. You're doing this to serve other people whom Christ loves. The power of God surges and flows through you. And that means that the gifts of the Spirit used in the power of the Spirit are life-changing for everybody. They change the life of the person who is serving, and they transform the life of the person who is being served. And if you're a Christian this morning, you've already experienced that at least once because you're in church and you're singing song to Jesus and you pray to God knowing that he hears you as your father because God in his great mercy sent you at least a few people to love you. And somebody turned the lights on for you toward the gospel. Maybe it was a pastor whose sermons bored you week after week, but finally... Through the Spirit of God, the lights came on. You saw the reality of sin. You saw the reality of heaven and hell. You saw your need for Jesus, and you humbly trusted Jesus to save you, and that's made all the difference. Maybe a Christian invited you week after week to coffee. Maybe somebody cried with you in a counseling session, and all the pain and trauma of your life opened up in a moment, and in that person's presence, you experienced what your family and what your abuser denied you, which was real grace, real safety, real love, and you understood that you, who felt all your shame and all your guilt, could actually be loved unconditionally by another person. Maybe it was someone who sponsored you in your journey towards sobriety. And it was there before you really understood who Jesus even was that you began to understand a little bit of what he could do. All of those things are the gifts of the Spirit in ordinary people manifesting, showing up in the lives of others for the common good. They're life-changing. And Christians, needless to say, should lead the way in the common good. And I'm afraid we're not. If I could be candid, since the pandemic, Christians have complained as much as anybody, maybe more. We've been brokenhearted about the loss of things, and it's been very hard for some of us to look past our own losses to the eternal loss that threatens others. Nobody. Nobody in the world, nobody in the country, nobody in this city 
should show a more abiding, persevering, patient, humble, tenacious, loyal, life-giving concern for the life of other people more than the children of God. Because the, we are those who Jesus came to. Not to make us serve him, but for him to first serve us. Remember, this is the same Savior who is going to literally take the dress of a slave and wash the filthy feet of his disciples before what we now call the Last Supper. Why did he do that? He did that because they were unwilling. Every man walked into that room seeing the bowl, seeing the water, and seeing the towel, and 12 men made a silent decision. I don't know who's going to wash the feet, but it's not going to be me. And here's the thing. Had Jesus said, men, I am your master. I am on my way to give my life for you. Let's celebrate this Passover in a dignified way. Will one of you please wash my feet? They all, probably even Judas the traitor, would have fought for the privilege. They all wanted to serve Jesus. They were unwilling to serve each other. And Jesus says, that's the mark of discipleship. Remember last week, we closed the service by reading the fruit of the Spirit? And I invited you to put your name in front of each fruit, in front of each trait, to try it out and see if, if for size, if you could put your, make your name fit the description of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember that? I don't expect that you all come every week, but those of you who were here or listened to it, do you remember? What is the first of the fruit of the Spirit? We've been reading from 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to give you a very difficult assignment. What comes after 1 Corinthians 12? Step by step. It's really simple. What comes after 1 Corinthians 12? 13. What is 1 Corinthians 13? The love chapter. The only place you hear that is weddings. And it's a good place to read it. But it completely, it completely misses the context. What is going to unify them in service is not a desire for preeminence. What is going to unify them in service is love. What was missing in their hearts the night that Jesus, their Savior, had to dress as a slave and act as a slave because none of them would humble themselves. No, friends, we are gifted and we are empowered to serve. Look with me now in Romans 12. Romans chapter 12, please. One book back. I'm reading now. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let me stop right there. Because that simple verse is one of the hardest to obey in the entire Bible. Paul says, I'm writing to you by the grace of God. I'm not lording it over you. God has been gracious to me, so I have something to say to you. Every one of you ought to think of himself the way you should. Not more highly than you ought to think, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. Each one has a measure of faith. In other words, you've all been given a certain ability to trust God. Use whatever trust in God you have to see yourself as you are. That's what Romans 12.3 means. Paul says something fascinating. He says that the self-assessment for Christians will always tend to be self-inflated. You'll always tend to think of yourself as better, stronger, more independent, less needy than you actually are. What Paul is asking instead is, by the grace that God has given him, I want each one of you to see yourselves as you really are. And that's hard. Self-awareness is the most difficult kind of awareness. 
In fact, it leads me to something maybe I've shared with you before, my favorite thing outside of the Bible that, in my opinion, explains more of human life than anything except this book is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you heard of it? Dunning and Kruger were professors at Cornell University, and in 1999, they wrote a peer-reviewed study. In other words, they offered scholarship to the world. They weren't just spitballing and imagining. They did research. And their research was people's self-perceptions of their own abilities. And the name of the journal article is Unskilled and Unaware of It. And what they discovered is that the average human being thinks that he's way better than he actually is. And here's the Dunning-Kruger rule. The less you know about something, the more likely you are to think you would be very good at doing it. Speaking of athletes, this is the bane of coaches everywhere. Because every parent and almost every athlete think, of course I'm going to make the varsity probably my freshman year. I remember my son and his dear friend years ago when they were very little children, I think they were about six years old, I listened and smiled as they discussed their future football greatness. And the question they were discussing is, will we go from high school straight to the NFL? Or if USC is having a bad year, should we give a year to the Trojans before we go on to our rightful position in the NFL? The Dunning-Kruger effect is real. They did a survey. I found it so funny, I posted it on my social media. They asked both Americans and Britons how they would fare in unarmed combat against wild animals. <laughs> it may not surprise you that Americans in every imaginary combat against animals thought they would do better than the British. Okay? The spirit of 1776 still lives among, in the heart of our nation. Here are the stats. 66% said they would beat a house cat. 36% thought they could defeat an eagle. And here's the best part. And these had to be men. I just can't imagine that they asked women this question. These had to be dudes. 8% of American men said, if I faced a grizzly bear, any idea what a grizzly bear is, the same had to be, the same 8% said they would also defeat a lion <laughs> with their bare hands. How? Well, I'd love to see it. Um, it'd be quick. Now, why am I telling you this? There's a reason that Paul wrote Romans 12, verse 3. Listen to it again in light of what Dunning and Kruger told us 2,000 years later. By the grace given to me, he's pleading with them. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us, what? Use them. Your gifts are not for you. Your gifts are intended for others. They will be squandered and lost and wasted if you don't use them. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with, chill, with cheerfulness. In other words, whatever you individually and all these house churches scattered across Rome, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has given you to do, do it. We need each other. We need each other to become who our Father intends us to be. You'll notice that Paul said that we belong. He said to the Romans, you not only belong to Christ, we also belong to one another. This is extraordinary contrary to American culture. We have commodified the American church. And what the American commodity of church has been, you go imagine and dream and educate yourself for the life you want. We, the church, can help. 
We'll help you with your kids. We'll help you improve your marriage. We'll help you try to endure your job. We'll help you try to live the best life you possibly can so that maybe someday, five years before you die, you don't have to work for anybody or worry about anything. And you can go sit on the beach and you're thinking, I already live near the beach. Maybe I can actually make it. And I can sit out there and not worry instead of stare into the ocean wondering whether I should throw myself into it. In other words, the American church has willingly lost vision of what it is called to do and be and told Americans in their self-interest, we can help you get there. You help us a little bit, we'll help you a little bit, we'll get together to the life you've always wanted. And Paul here says something radically different. He says you're all gifted and you're all empowered, but you all only have a few things. You actually are family and you belong not only to Jesus, you also belong to each other. All of these biblical images that the church is a body, that the church is a family, that the church is a household, all of those mean that unity must prevail. That in all of our diversity, we are together because we use the diversity to serve one another so that we can all become what our Heavenly Father actually wanted us to be. It means that we need each other. That a Christian who thinks that they need no service or encouragement from others is misguided and mistaken. That a Christian who thinks, on the contrary, that they have nothing to give and offer others is also misguided and mistaken. All of these images of family, all of these images of the church as a body where we are belong to Jesus and we are members of one another, that's really striking. That's not the way church has been built and marketed in the United States. You see, if you lose a member of your body, your physical body, you lose a piece of your body, we call that an emergency. No one has ever lost a finger on their right hand and said, ah, okay, I've still got five on the other hand. I'll be all right. No. You slam your pinky in the car door, your entire body mobilizes to help. You scream in pain. You tell someone what happened. The hand you've got left tries to open the door to get the smashed hand out. I mean, you mobilize. What does the church do? It invites people in the old misguided mar army marketing of years ago to dream of being all that you can be and the moment the consumer thinks the church isn't keeping its promise, I'm out. In some churches, if a person can't contribute and contribute in the right way and do enough things, they're out. Jesus intended transformation and instead we've created something more like a transaction. You see, what happens is that God decides who gets which gifts. If I can be candid with you for a moment before I'm done, I'm sure you've experienced something like it. I know the pastors who are in this room certainly have along with me. I'm not immune to comparisons. And many times I've admired older, wiser, better, stronger, more intelligent pastors than I am and thought, boy, I wish I could do that. Why am I stuck being who I am? It's unchristian. See, here's the thing. The only gifts I'll answer to Jesus for are the ones he actually gave me. The only gifts you'll answer to Jesus for are the gifts he gave you. Once I realized that years ago, that God in his grace and mercy had made me the way he made me and saved me at the time he saved me and gave me the family and the resource and the opportunities and the friendships and the family that I enjoy and that all of those things were simply brief gifts that I could only have for a time that I will soon lose myself. And the entire purpose of me having them for that brief period of time was to use them the way Jesus used his person and his gifts. In glory of Christ and service to others. 
so that the song that the students were, the student band was singing would be a living reality in my life and yours, that I won't be glorified and magnified. What a terrible idea to magnify myself. Who wants more of this? <laughs> but if you magnify Jesus, that's going to make all the difference. And if the world could experience a community of people who come together out of love for Jesus, seeking the common good of those beside them and the good of their neighbors outside these walls, it would be absolutely transformational. What have we done instead? We've made pastors into celebrities. We've elevated men and gifts and competence to such a high level that the character of Christ was not developed or was never present in the first place. And it's absolutely blasphemous. There's nothing wrong with fame. There's nothing wrong with notoriety. Jesus was famous. Paul was famous. D.L. Moody was famous. My dear friend and, bra and brother Ray Comfort is famous. Here's the difference. They use their fame and their platform to insist that people look past them and look to Jesus instead. Whatever your gifts are, they're yours. You didn't ask for them. You didn't create them. You can only cultivate them and you can only use them. But when you do, those gifts must be used to serve others as Jesus intended. And if you're surrendered to God, it means that you'll be serving other people. If you're not serving other people, you may belong to Jesus, but you're not acting like Jesus. Jesus rose every morning looking for those for whom he could serve. The fruit and the gifts of the Spirit will affect people the way Jesus did. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control that we talked about last week exhibited in your life that character offering service to other people, you'll have an impact on earth in your neighborhood right here in Huntington Beach, right down the road in Fountain Valley, Garden Grove, Westminster, Long Beach, wherever you're from, you can bring a little corner of the kingdom into your very ordinary world because nobody in the world, no company, no college, no school, nobody is offering people the kind of transformational, sacrificial love that Jesus did. He left his disciples on earth to mimic him, to imitate him, to show his character and his self-sacrificial love to other people. When we do, it'll make a change. And I've seen it week by week. Bottom line, church, what I'm trying to tell you is that behaving like a child of God means serving other people the way Jesus did. Let me close with a practical question. Can you reflect for a moment and think of the names and see the faces of the people you serve? See, because service is one of those hard things. It's an easy value to preach and a difficult, humbling reality to live out. If you can't immediately think of the names and remember the faces to whom you'll make a difference, you may not actually be serving as you think. This VBS taught me so much. Two different women, old enough to be grandmothers to most of the kids who came to our VBS, cried for joy in front of me. They were so happy to be serving children they'd barely met. One young man who's becoming a close friend has his first big boy job down in South Orange County. He has an engineering job in one of the world's most famous companies. It's his first year. He's never complained about it. On the contrary, he's very grateful for it, but I know the pressure's on because it's his first year. A lot of people would like to be given that opportunity. And day by day, evening by evening, I saw him here on this campus and I knew he made the hard, long drive from the southernmost part of Orange County and he was here till 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night serving kids he didn't even know. Why would you do such a thing? Because of Jesus. Because kids who've been locked in and damaged by a pandemic 
whose self-image has shifted and become even worse than before this mess started, need to hear of unconditional love, and they need to see it in the love and the grace of other people. So many of you were here. I was delighted. I was elated. We had junior high and high school and college age and young professionals serving our kids. It wasn't our biggest VBS, in part because we held it in the evening, but it was probably my favorite because I saw so many people who were in a position and in a season of life where the culture tells them, you get yours. You make this about other people serving and helping you. Instead, I saw them giving away a little bit of their life one night at a time and it made all the difference. So thank you, students. That picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus does, that's what makes the church. That is the signature of the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit working through ordinary people like us. If you will get serious with Jesus and answer the question of who you will serve or who you will continue to serve, we will see the power of God through the Holy Spirit gifting and empowering each one of us to do what Jesus did, which is to serve. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you help us now answer the question, who are the people we are serving? If we don't have answers now, give us the grace, give us the faith, give us the courage to step forward and embrace the people you have called us to serve. I pray that in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, give me one more minute to put some feet on it. If God showed you that you need to step forward in service and you have no idea where to start, that's what usually happens in a sermon like this. I will do all that I can and make everybody I know who could possibly help, help you be available to you to help you figure it out. Some of you are so new in the faith. Some of you are so beaten down by life, you don't think you actually have anything to offer, but you do. If you're just willing to take God at his word that you can serve others, you just don't know how or where to start, send me an email, give me a phone call. We together will find out what God has called and empowered you to do, and you will see the power of God at work in your life. I love you. I thank you. God bless you. The world and the service is just outside those doors. Let's go get them. And if you need prayer, these wonderful people right here, part of their service, they don't get nearly enough foot traffic over there. They are standing over there hoping to listen to you and pray for you. God bless you. See you soon.